we're going into the wilderness. Now, basically, an overview looks like this. We spent about 11 months in Egypt with the 10 plagues. God then delivers them in a single night out of Egypt and brings them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. It's going to take them about 50 days to get to Mount Sinai, where God says, as a sign to Moses, a promise that I will be with you. Back in chapter 3, I will bring you to Mount Sinai and you worship me here. And that's going to happen now. At Mount Sinai, God will come down in a big burning ball of fire, and they're going to spend 11 months there receiving the law and the instructions for the tabernacle. So that's kind of where we're going. So we're heading now into a 50-day journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And so they're in the wilderness. We've already seen their incredible lack of faith. The minute God delivers them through ten plagues, the pillar of fire burning before them, and the minute they're brought to the Red Sea, they're like, oh, we're hopeless. We're all going to die. Life was better in Egypt. You, God, just brought us out here to let us die. That's a pretty messed up accusation to accuse somebody who just saved you. So this is their character. If you read all this in one sitting, which we'll try to, we're going to do tonight, but if you're reading the whole book of Exodus in one sitting, and you're taking this all in, there's two things that really stand out in what's going to happen in the next four chapters and the next 50 days. First is the constant repetition of the people's complaining. All you hear is complaining, complaining, complaining. It's going to escalate. It's going to go from complaining to grumbling to quarreling to accusations. And so that's the thing that constantly stands out over and over and over and over again. The whole point of this is for you to look in a mirror. It's very easy to think that's not me. Like, oh my gosh, these stupid people, how could they be like that? But if you really think about it, that's us. I mean, yes, there's positive people out there, but most people, and even the positive people, are still negative. And the reality is this, they've actually done studies, and studies after studies after studies says that we actually enjoy negativity more than positivity. There's something wrong with our brain and the way that it's wired that when negative news or complaining hits our ears, it actually stimulates us on a greater extent than positive. And we're actually attracted to it. This is why the news hardly mentions anything positive because positive news doesn't get them good ratings. It doesn't make them more money because nobody wants to tune into that. Yes, we say we really want to hear the positive, but except for the very few of you, you keep tuning into the news over and over and again because you want to hear murder, death, rape, murder, death, rape, over and over and over again. And so that's the reality. That's what makes the news. Here's what's interesting, too. The news will convince you that everything is bad in the country, but studies have shown that this time is actually the most peaceful time in all of human history, the safest time, and the highest possible way of living. Crime is lower than it's ever been in human history. Um, racism, all that stuff. But the media makes you think it's happening all the time, and you tune into it. We're tuned to negative. That's our sin nature. That's our sin nature. So, but we like to think of ourselves as positive people. So the reality is, this is who we are. 
And so what it's doing is in the day-to-day moments, it's very easy for us to not think about what we did negatively in the past. But as you read this story and it's just shoved in your face over and over again, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, you begin to realize it's us. And here's the other thing. No matter how many times God does something positive for them, they're still going to go to the negative. Because studies have also shown that we're a hundred times more likely to remember a negative event in our past than a positive one. That we actually have to experience something positive a hundred times more than it's something negative in order for us to be more likely to remember it. And if you think about it, like you tend to think about the negative, oh, it was like this, and it was bad, and it was bad. And it's hard for you to think about the good times and the good memories. Now, if you're in a special, like, going through the pictures with your kids kind of a moment, that's a little different, but because we only take pictures of positive things. Facebook makes you think that everything is awesome and positive in everybody's life, but we tend to remember the negative stuff. And so this is what it's trying to do. The second point is this. In the midst of all this continuous complaining is the graciousness of God that with all this complaining, the fact that God will provide water for them, that God will provide bread for them, that God will provide meat for them, that God will deliver them, that he constantly does this. He does not strike them down. He doesn't backhand them. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't even really rebuke them ever. He just continually provides for them. It makes that graciousness, that love, that long-suffering which is exactly what the word means. You suffer for a long time period without doing anything about it because of their complainings makes him stand out even more. And so yet they can't remember that. They don't remember that stuff, just like we tend. Now, if you think about it, think about how often you come to a problem in your life and you immediately start feeling hopeless or you immediately try to solve it through your own efforts, your own money, your own lawyer, your own efforts, your own work, your own time, your inner whatever, and you don't immediately go to prayer and you don't immediately seek God out. Even though if you really sat down and thought about it, you could think of 50 million times that God showed up and just miraculously solved your problem. And I don't mean a Hollywood sense, but in a I did not do that and I don't know how it worked out kind of a sense, but yet God did. Now I'm not saying you don't ever go straight to God in prayer, but most of the time we tend to go to our own resources. And no matter how many times he saves us, no matter how many times he delivers us, our first knee-jerk response is to feel hopeless, to worry, or to try to fix the problem on our own without going to him. And that's what you need to see here. It's very easy to look at a bunch of people thousands of years ago in the wilderness in the desert and think, how stupid are they? (laughs) Until you realize that that's exactly who we are. And that's the point of this passage is to help you see who you really are and then to help you see who God really is despite that. And this is what I want you to see because it's very easy for the atheists to come along and see, say, look at that God who is going to punish them in chapter 32 in an unrealistic way. And yet you're going to miss all the long-suffering and the incredible faithfulness of God and the first 32 chapters that led up to that. And the only reason he punishes them so harshly is because he has to be just at a certain point. But justice is always followed by mercy because mercy always comes first. And justice usually only comes as a result of our absolute 
flippant response to God's continual mercy. And so that's what I want you to see here. That's what the author, that's what the narrator wants you to see. So they have come out. Verse 22, chapter 15. The Moses led Israel to journey away from the Red Sea, and they went out to the desert of Shur. And they walked for about three days into the desert and found no water. Then they came to Marah. Marah is a Hebrew word that means bitter. But they were not able to drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. That is why it was named Marah. So God brings in this water. And it's only been three days later. Three days. It's all it's been. Less than a week. And they're this place and they can't drink the water. And it's bitter because a lot of the places around here, their waters are bitter because of just lots of minerals that have flown into the little lakes or ponds and um, a high sulfur content. There's a lot of sulfur springs around this area. And it's what makes the water really warm. And it's really nice to have like a hot tub experience. But it's a really horrible drinking experience. It smells like rotten eggs. And if you drink it, it's going to make you puke and throw up. It's really good for a natural enema, um, but other than that, it's kind of nasty and bitter. And so they come to this water, and they drink, and it's not good. Now, the intelligent, faithful person who knows God would immediately think, God's going to take care of us. This is all going to work out. After 11 months of watching the absolute raw power of God demonstrate before us in salvation, he's going to take care of us. Verse 24, so the people murmured or complained or grumbled against Moses saying, what can we drink? He cried out to Yahweh and Yahweh showed him a tree. And when Moses threw it into the water, the water became safe to drink. And there Yahweh made for them a binding ordinance. And there he tested them. And he said, If you will diligently obey Yahweh your God and do what is right in his sight and pay attention to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, then I, then all the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, I will not bring on you, for I am Yahweh, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, Elim, where there were twelve wells for water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Their immediate response is complaining, grumbling. Okay, what are we going to do? We're all going to die. We're out here and we have no water. We're in the desert. Okay, they immediately, now technically they're right. They're in the desert and they're without water. And remember, this isn't just like, oh, but didn't you pack enough water bottles before you left Egypt? Remember, they have animals with them. They have cattle. They have sheep. They have goats. They have lambs. And this is tons of water. You can only carry so much. And three days later, probably chances are all their water sources are out. And so we're told specifically here that God brought them to this to test them, to find out what their first response is. Now, I know on the surface you think, what kind of a God is that? Like he intentionally brings them to something nasty just to see what they're going to do. Well, that's what we do all the time. The only way you can truly know yourself is if you take a test. See, my students tell me all the time, I know all this information. I studied for two hours last night. Of course, my first response is, that's it. <laughs> but the reality is that they think they know it until they take the test and they realize they don't. And what that teaches them, it's actually less about the grade and some more about revealing to them what they truly know and what they truly don't know. 
And you can go through life thinking that you're really good and you know all this stuff, and if you're never tested, you're fooling yourself. You're immature, you're delusional, and you're ignorant. None of us truly know what we're going to do until we're put in that situation. It's easier to say, oh, I could never. But you have no idea what you're capable of or what you will do until you're put in that exact scenario that that person was put in with those exact same conditions. And so that's the point of a test. The point of a test is to reveal who you truly are. And you will either default to complaining, you'll either default to sin, or you'll fall on your knees before God and go to Him for help. And that's the point of a test. And so it seems harsh to think that somebody could actually give you a test, but it actually is very revealing to you who you are, and now you know exactly who you truly are, and you can make true adjustments to that. One of the things I tell my students right off the bat is when you get all your answers and you find out what's wrong, I'm not, don't come to me and ask me what the right answer is. You need to go back to your notes and you need to figure out what the wrong answer, what the right answer is. You need to correct it. And if you try and you're stumped and you still can't figure out, then come and talk to me. But part of a test is also for you to correct yourself and to find out where you messed up and to know how to do better. And that's the whole point. And so God is bringing them here to attest them, to, so not just he can know, he already knows. Most of this stuff is for us. We're the ignorant ones. We're the ones that think we're better off than what we really are. And so the test reveals to them, this is who you truly are. You're the kind of person that immediately starts complaining despite 11 months of seeing the glory of God. Now that it's been revealed to them and they failed the first test, The question is, will they do what is necessary to go back and find out why they screwed up, find out, did God actually come through for them? How did he provide for them? And to do better the next time on the next test. And that becomes the question. Can they do better on the next question, on the next test? And so he brings them here to test them. And they quarrel. Now, notice what Moses' immediate um, default is. He immediately goes to God and says, help us. So Moses shows that it actually is possible to pass this particular test. And remember, Moses only knew God for probably a month longer than them. He started off at the exact same place that they did, pretty much at the exact same time in history as they did. And so he is able to pass this test. And his immediate default is to go to God without complaining. Remember the first time he did complain. But at Red Sea, he had confidence in God. And he's continuing to go to God for that help. And so God tells him to take a stick and throw it in the water. Because that's totally logical. But it's not. And here's what you're going to find. There's going to be a lot of things that God will do. And it feels very illogical. Like walking around the city for seven days a week and just screaming at it at the end. But the beauty of God is, is that it's so illogical that it leads you to the only logical conclusion that God is the one that did it. You see, if there is no logical, physical, scientific, chemistry, physics answer to how this could work, then the only conclusion you're left with is a supernatural miracle of the creator of the God that can suspend all natural laws because he's the one that wrote them. 
So part of it is just so that you'll know it's him. It's kind of like when he waits for Sarah to be completely barren and incapable of be having kids because she's past menopause, then he gives her a kid. And so the reality is that's what he does. The second reason is he usually loads these things with symbology. And remember we talked about the burning bush. The trees are often used as a symbol of life and a symbol of Israel. And so the, by the stick, the branch being thrown in the water and purifying it is going to connect to the idea that Israel is supposed to be that. All throughout the prophets, Israel is going to be called the branch and the tree and the vine and the tree and the bush, I mean. And until eventually we come to Christ who says, I am the true vine. Remain in me and I'll remain in you and you will live forever. And so most of the time these things are, one, to prove that it is God because it can't make sense without him, and two, to load it with symbology to ultimately give you a picture of who Christ is. And so they throw the stick in and it's pure. And so now he's taken what is unclean and he makes it clean. And that's really important because we're getting into the book of Leviticus soon. And that's the theme of Leviticus. And so they're able to drink. And then he brings them to a second body of water where they're able to drink. And there's 70 palm branches because a multiple of seven means completion. And there's 12 um, wells, which is the 12 tribes of Israel. So what's the point that he's saying? Is that he can completely satisfy all 12 nations of Israel. He can completely satisfy all 12 nations of Israel. So not only can he purify the bitter waters, but he can bring them to other clean waters that are completely satisfactory. And the fact that he can do this twice means he can do it a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time, that despite being in the wilderness, this is the God that can change water and this is the God that can produce water. Do you trust him? And he meets their needs. Never once does it mention that he's anger, angry. Never doesn't mention his impatience. It doesn't mention any wrath. It doesn't mention any judgment. It doesn't mention any consequences. Just the provision of God. And that's important to remember. Verse 26. When God speaks to them and provides us water, notice that he also gives them a little lesson. And the lesson he mentions for three things. First, he emphasizes that I am your protector and healer. Now, it's important because the other thing by changing the, making the unclean clean is it portrays him as a healer. And so he says, look, I am the one who can protect you and I'm the one who can heal you. The second point that he makes is although his love is unconditional, his blessings only come through obedience. God will always love you no matter what you do but he can only bless you when you're obedient. Now, sometimes God blesses you even when you don't deserve it, like right now. But it's only to teach them. But like I said, if you continue to be disobedient in the presence of God's continual blessings, then eventually that disobedience robs you of the blessings. I'll give you an example. If your kids, or if you don't have any, you're thinking about your parents, if they go out and kill a whole bunch of people and they go to death row, no matter whether they're a serial killer or not, as a mother or a father, you will still go visit them in prison and put your hand on the glass and say, I love you. You will never abandon them. Your parents will never abandon you. A healthy parent, okay? Yet, you're not going to have a very trusting relationship with them. 
You're not going to be able to bless them. There are serious consequences for what they have done and their disobedience. You're not going to be able to trust them. You're not going to leave them alone in your house, probably. You're not going to leave them alone with other people that you love and trust. But you will never, ever, 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 ever stop loving them. And if ever they repent, you will always be there for them. You might be a little skeptical, but you'll be there. But that doesn't mean that you'll trust them. It doesn't mean that you'll have a healthy relationship. And it doesn't mean that you can be there to bless them. And that's the love of God. That though God will never, ever, ever stop loving them, and though he will always be there for them if they choose to come to him, these blessings and the flight of their disobedience will only last so long. Because if you ruin a relationship enough, then you can't have no relationship anymore unless something seriously changes with your heart. And that's what he's saying here. That's the point that he's making. And the third point that he's making is that Yahweh does not play favorites. And I mentioned this last week. If you don't want me to do what I did to Egypt, then obey me. I do not play favorites. I punished Egypt because they were disobedient. I did not punish you because you did not deserve it. But the day that you deserve it, don't think that I will not ground you or punish you or take things away. And that's the point that God is making here. 